We are going to be continuing our uh, study into the life of David, and not just the life of David, but then looking at how David's life, the narrative that we see in First and Second Samuel, affected or led to the Psalms that he then wrote. And so we're going to be pairing two story or a story with the Psalm together again today. Uh, we're going to be looking in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 and 12, which is the story of David and Bathsheba. And then we're going to pair that with Psalm 51, which is the psalm that David wrote coming out of that. So quick show of hands, how many of you have ever sinned before? Anybody? Oh, good. So this is going to apply to you today. Um, we are going to look at what we do with our sin. And this is kind of a problem with humanity, right? Like starting from Adam and Eve, we just sin. We don't always do the things God wants us to do. We don't always... We don't do the things that God wants us to do, and we know that. We're prideful, we're covetous, we're ungrateful, we know that we fall short of God's desire, plan for our life. Um, And it doesn't matter how close to a life like Christ we get, we will fall short and we will sin. And so what do we do when we sin? How do we respond? How do we respond to God? And how do we seek restoration with him. And so as we've been doing all summer long, we're going to look at what happened with David when he fell into sin, when he was confronted by that sin, and then how he responded in Psalm 51. So just a word as we get into this story, David and Bathsheba is not the most lighthearted story in the whole Bible. Um, there's some heavy stuff in here, and um, it's a story about abuse of power, about people who are supposed to be safe people who are not safe people. Um, it's a story of sexual abuse as well, and this could be a story that rings close to home for some people. Um, these are hard things to discuss, um, but what I love about this story is that it brings these things to light in a way that shows that God cares about the people hurt in these situations. He has a heart that wants justice for those hurt in the same way that we see Bathsheba get hurt in this story. And so it's a heavy subject. I know there are kids in here and stuff too, so I just want to put that out there on front before we started. So we're going to start with 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can go there in your Bibles, your apps, or on the screen. And we're going to read the whole story, but we're going to look at pieces of the story because the story of David and Bathsheba um, informs and frames why David wrote Psalm 51 the way he did and the impact that Psalm 51 has when you read it through that lens. So Starting in 2 Samuel 11, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So let's start unpacking this. So the very first line is a time in spring when the kings were supposed to go to war. David did not go to war. David stays in Jerusalem while the rest of his army and all the men of that age leave the city to go fight. And what the story taught before is usually this point where we, you know, the, the preacher or whatever 
or takes the time to mention, like, this is an example of putting yourself in an unsafe situation, of putting yourself in a situation where temptation is going to rise and all that kind of thing. Um, I have a hard time with that because I feel like sometimes it gives people, gives us an excuse or an out of responsibility. Like, yeah, there was sin that was involved there, but it's not really my fault because I was in a situation I shouldn't have been. And we see very quickly in this story that is not an excuse that is okay with God. David is responsible for his actions from this part of the story all the way to the end of the story. So we keep that in mind. Yeah, there are times where we are in situations that are not healthy and not safe for us that we choose to do. I'm not talking about things that you know, we have no control or choice over. We choose to allow ourselves to be in situations sometimes. But the reoccurring theme of David and Bathsheba is that we take too light of a view of sin. And when we allow ourselves to make excuses for what we have done or doing or where we are, we're trying to minimize the damage of sin. David begins this story trying to minimize the damage of sin. And when we try to make excuses, all we are is we're kings who should be at war, and we are not. So within that frame of reference, we know, David knows, I want to be very clear, that David knows what he's doing through this entire story. This is not, oh, he was fooled by the devil. David very clearly knows what he's doing, and he continues to make the choices that he makes. We know what we're doing almost all the time, and we continue to make the choices that we make. We make a little compromise here, and then when nothing bad happens, we make a little compromise again. Nothing bad happens, we make a little compromise again. And when we're doing that, what we're doing is we're viewing sin in this like transactional nature, right? Like, almost like there's an imaginary line, and this is the heaven side, and this is the hell side, and every time we sin, we take a step closer to the line, but every time we ask for forgiveness, we take a step back. And when we view sin like that, it becomes very easy for this transactional nature to be like, well, I can get as close to this line as I can, but as long as I'm on this side of the line, then I'm going to be fine. And if I step over here, well, then I'll really just pray hard to get back over here. And as long as I'm over here, by the time Jesus comes back, I'm in good shape. And again, and we're seeing this with Dave in the story, what we're doing is we're minimizing the destructiveness of sin. We do not take sin as seriously as we should. Sin, every time we sin, should wreck us. It should drive us to our knees. It's so bad, Christ came and died for it to put it to death, but we make the little compromises. And we try to couch it sometimes, like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm gossiping, but, you know, it's for the other person's own good because they really need to get their act together, right? Or, no, I'm really angry, but it's righteous anger because it's something I disagree with, right? And again, I'm just going to keep reiterating, when we don't take sin as seriously as we can, we're okay with making those compromises because we don't see what our consequences are. Or we don't have any consequences. We get away with something. And then in our mind, we're processing this through the lens of like, well, God maybe would have punished me otherwise, so maybe it's okay to do a little bit more because I'm still on this side of the line. David will continue to make little compromises. And we see this with David. Right now he's comfortable. He's not under any pressure. He's relaxed. He lets his guard down. We've looked at in the past weeks the stories of Saul pursuing David and all the hardship and trial that he's been dealing with. Now he's at a place where he's an older man. He's in the palace. He has a peaceful kingdom. He has troops that listen to him. He has a people that love him. And he can just relax a little bit. And he thinks he can let his guard down because it's not a big deal. God has fulfilled his promises, right? Like what else could go wrong? And then he looks out 
and he sees Bathsheba bathing, and then he makes a compromise. It's okay to look. And then he makes another compromise. It's not, there's no problem asking who she is. Then he makes another compromise. Yeah, she's another guy's wife, but I'm still just going to invite her to the palace. Then he makes another compromise. And you see, compromise after compromise after compromise, David, in his position of power, thinks he can just do what he's going to do. And this is going to send us on a little uh, rabbit trail here, because Wesley is not the only one who can do rabbit trails in his sermon, so I am going to do a rabbit trail in mine, and that's just nothing you can do about it. So, um, Bathsheba. So let me start by saying, again, that there are some of you in this room who may have been in her shoes or something close to it. And it's really easy to read this text and only focus on David and what David's response is here. But for some of you in here, you may read this story and the eyes you see the story through is the eyes of Bathsheba. And I know it can be hard to read this and see a story about someone who's in power and abuse that power and abuse somebody else with that power. But God, remember, does not let David get away with this. God provides justice to Bathsheba by bringing this to light. He provides justice to Bathsheba by her children, having children, having children, which leads us to Jesus. Bathsheba's in the lineage of Jesus. She's called out in the lineage of Jesus, and this is God giving her justice and giving her agency in her story when she doesn't have any here. And I know that, unfortunately, the church in the church, there's examples you hear on the news of people in power who abuse that power and act like David here and think they get away with it, who think that their power allows them to do whatever they desire to do. Sheba, thinking from her perspective, she must have felt so alone in this story. She was alone at home. She must have felt alone when David called her, when David was done with her, when she found out she was pregnant, when she found out, spoiler, that her husband is killed. She must have felt so alone, but she wasn't. God was walking with her and was seeing her and was hearing her this entire time. So you may have, and I love my church background, and I feel like I grew up in healthy churches for the most part, but um, sometimes how we approach scripture changes over time. And so if you're older, you may have heard this story presented in such a way that like, so she was out there seducing David. Right? Has anyone ever heard the story shared, that perspective? Yeah, that Bathsheba was seducing David. And so it really wasn't David's fault. Yeah, you should have be very clear. That is not what the text shows us at all. Bathsheba is 100% a victim in the story, and David is 100% the abuser in the story. Okay, So we need to be very clear. And I know this because I did some study. And so <laughs> there's a couple of things. And again, the point of this is not just a rabbit's trail for rabbit tail's sake, but the characterization of how we characterize David and Bathsheba in the story informs our response to when Nathan confronts David with his sin in the next chapter, and it informs how we respond to Psalm 51. Because if we view the story through the lens of, like, David didn't really do anything wrong, then Nathan's confrontation of David doesn't mean really that much, and Psalm 51 loses all of its power because David didn't do anything wrong. But that's not what Psalm or 2 Samuel 11 teaches. And so when we look at this story, it's very clearly defined that David was not where he was supposed to be. He was not supposed to be in the city. So Bathsheba's expectation would have been all the men of fighting age should have been out of Jerusalem to begin with. That's number one. Number two, 
And we see this later, that when Nathan confronts David, Uriah and Bathsheba, Uriah is her husband, we'll get to in a second, Uriah and Bathsheba are very clearly defined by Nathan in his story as innocent victims, like literally like an innocent lamb who was stolen. So we have that point, and that's Nathan confronting David in this story. So we have that characterization. Number three, um, for some reason I remember this story growing up as like Bathsheba was taking a bath on the roof. I don't know why that was, the, that's not what the text says. The text says that Bathsheba was bathing and David was walking on the roof of the palace, which the palace would have been the highest building in all of Jerusalem because it's a palace, that's what kings do. And so by walking on the roof, David would have had sight lines to the entire city below him, to the entire valley, you know, the other way or the plain the other way. And so this isn't Bathsheba out there, you know, doing anything. This is Bathsheba in her own home and David scoping out his city and sees her, right? So that's number three. Number four, David is right at the beginning clearly told that she is Uriah the Hittite's wife. And Uriah the Hittite, we find out earlier in Samuel, is not some random guy that he wouldn't have known. Uriah the Hittite is defined as one of David's mighty men, which means he's one of David's 30. There are 30 mighty men, 27 or 30, I think it's 30. Most loyal, most faithful soldiers. So this was a guy who has been with David for a long time. This is a guy who fought many battles for David. This is a guy who was very close to David. So when he heard Uriah the Hittite, this is not just some stranger's wife. This is a friend of his wife. Okay, so couching the story that way as well. And then finally, there's one last phrase that really bothered me as I was reading this. And it's the verse, it says, um, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. And so that word took, right? You hear the word took, and that could have a couple different um, definitions based on your context and how you think of it, right? Like, I could go to one of my, tell Kristen, you know, my wife, like, hey, I'm going to take one of my kids on an errand with me in the Home Depot, which we just moved. We've been to Home Depot so much that that's like a bad word in our house now for the kids. Like, no, I'm not going to Home Depot. Um, but I'm taking my kids to Home Depot, right? There's this voluntary, like, hey, come along with me. I'm asking you to come. It could be took, like when I was in the classroom, I'm assistant principal now, but when I was a teacher, I'd be like, hey kids, my students, you're taking a test. Like this wasn't a voluntary if you feel like it, this was a command, like this is what's going to happen, but you still had some agency in it. Or maybe you think of took in the way of like, you know, someone physically grabbing something and taking something. And so I looked into, did a little Hebrew word study, and I am not a Hebrew scholar at all, trust me. Um, but doing a Hebrew word study on this word took, it's um, the word lakach, you have to do a real guttural sound, which I can't do. So, um, And the definition of that word literally translates as to seize, to take captive, or to be captured. So the author of 2 Samuel is not just saying, hey, David sent some messengers to talk to Bathsheba. He's literally saying he sent some messengers to take her and seize her and bring her to the palace. So again, this is not an example of like a mutual attraction story or a Romeo and Juliet type story, which is such a dumb story, but that's another sideline. Um, <laughs> I don't like that. I was an English teacher too, and I just don't like that. This is, not, this is not an affair. Like this is not a prolonged case of adultery where there was mutual attraction and they're both sitting. Like this is David seizing somebody out of their home and committing sin. So with that context in and we need to move forward to the rest of the story to see how David, when he's confronted by this, responds and how he responds and cries out to God, okay? So David was carrying on after this. Doesn't seem like any context in this chapter. David might not have even thought twice about Bathsheba after this. We don't have any context like that there's any other communication with her or anything like that. And one day she sends a message to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant. 
And we know that it was David because her husband was at war. There's no one else could be. So David panics, summons her husband back from the front lines, Uriah, and tells Uriah, hey, go home. Hey, I'm glad you've been fighting. Go home, spend some time with your wife, and we'll go back to war. And Uriah doesn't because, one, he knows it's not right that the rest of the soldiers that he's fighting with don't get to go home to their families. And then, two, it would have made him ceremonially unclean, and he couldn't return to battle. So he didn't do that. David keeps trying. David calls him over for dinner, gets him completely drunk, sends him home. Uriah still won't go home to his wife. So David, again, tries to control this situation. He feels the weight of sin pushing down on him. Hasn't addressed Bathsheba at all in this story as far as we see. He's trying to cover this up. And he sends Uriah back to the front with a message for the commander, for the general, telling the general, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go attack this very heavily armed city. I want you to find the strongest part of the wall where the most troops are. I want you to storm that part of the wall. And at the last minute, I want you to call everybody back except Uriah. It's a suicide mission. I want you to go, call everyone back, and let Uriah be killed. Another example of David so disconnected from his sin is what he's doing, because it seems like he's just scrambling, right? Like, oh my gosh, I got to cover this up. This, is, this can't go out of control anymore. Like, he just assumes that he can figure this out. Like, he's okay. This hasn't worked out so far, but I'm still the king. I can still make this happen. And how many times do we think of that, too? Like, okay, I'm still in control of my life. I can make sure this is taken care of. I can make sure this still happens the way I want it to. I can make sure there's no major consequences. We're going to get out of this okay. And what David should have done was drop to his knees and confess and beg for God's mercy and beg for forgiveness. And he doesn't. He continues to try to handle the situation. So, Joab, the general, does this attack and then sends a messenger back to David. And in verse 19, we read this. And Joab, he, Joab, instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that there was, they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubeth, Jerubetheseth? The key Bible words to say I'm like fast and confidently, and then you don't know you're doing wrong. <laughs> Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Think about it a second. Joab had to give his messenger a reminder to tell David, hey, I know you're angry we did this, but remember, this is to cover up a sin of your sin. Like, you ordered a murder of a man to cover up your sin. And you're getting angry. Like, David was so disconnected. Like, Joab was afraid that David would not, like, remember that he ordered a man to death in this way. So to get the message back, David hears the message. His response is basically like, ah, oh, that's a bummer. You try again, guys. You guys will do better next time. It's all right. And then he takes Bathsheba after she mourns and she marries him, or marries her. And we see how complacency within David has caused him not to take his sin seriously, and again, we do the same thing. We minimize, we excuse, we can cover up, or we work to neutralize our sin. And because we, like David, do this, we allow ourselves to desensitize our hearts to the enormity of sin. And this affects our lives and all the little things we do set in motion to minimize how we feel about lying, how we, uh, minimize how we feel about gossiping or anger or greed or sexual sin or gluttony or how we treat other people how we ignore others that are in need. We compromise a little at a time until we allow ourselves to get away with a lot of things with no consequences, or there will be no consequences. 
but we need to take sin seriously. It is devastating. It is a death sentence. It's major. It separates us from God, and a lot of the times, I act like it's no big deal. Maybe you do too. We try to hide like Adam and Eve sometimes. Try to hide from our consequences. Try to hide from what we did. We try to hide in our garden. And sometimes it's as simple as we're just so flustered and tangled up in what we've done or what we're thinking or in everything going on that we try to fix it on our own because we don't know what else to do instead of turning to God and checking in and seeing and listening for what's best for us. David obviously did not think twice about what he was doing here. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was sin. He knew it was murder. He knew all these things. But everything we see in the story so far is a man who just assumes he's getting away with everything. That he's the king, God put him there, and it's going to be okay. And here's the thing as well. Kristen um, shared this thought with me when I was talking with her about the sermon. Um, We see so many chances for David to repent in this story, right? He's on the roof. We've kind of talked about this before. He's on the roof, and he sees Bathsheba. He could have stopped and repented there. He asked who she was, found out she was another man's wife. He could have stopped and repented there. He called her back to the palace, could have stopped and repented there. He sent her home. He could have repented there. He called Uriah home, could have repented there. Sent Uriah back to be murdered, could have repented there. Married Bathsheba, could have repented there. So many times God is waiting on David in his, to ask for his mercy. So many times David had the opportunity to publicly repent, to cry out to God as a man after God's own heart as he's described in scripture. But he continued to build this unsafe life in this unsafe situation. So God had to step in and rescue him. And we see that when Nathan comes along. So Nathan was a prophet, was a close advisor of David. He shows up repeatedly in stories of David. He's been around for a while. So Nathan comes to David and says, hey, David, there's a situation that needs your attention as the king. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and the lamb was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David hears a story, and it enrages him. He is angry. This is such a clear case of injustice in David's mind. This is somebody using their power and just abusing and committing injustice to somebody else, and he is furious. And so he gets up and he responds righteously, right? It says in verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So a little context here, the Jewish law, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Restitution. Restitution for this act in Jewish law is you pay it back four times. So that's what David's saying. Like, yeah, he did this. He's going to pay it back four times. But David goes a step forward for the, what this guy really should be done. We really, we need to execute him. Like, he really should die for this. We can't do that because that's not what's in the law. He's going to pay it back four times. But this is so heinous, he should die. And he is just consumed with righteous fury. And then... 
completely oblivious to what this story is truly about. Nathan reveals it to him, right? Nathan said to David in verse 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if this was too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your home because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and lie with the wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And if you have ever been in a place like David is here, you know exactly how he feels. He has just been confronted with his sin and the consequences of it. And his stomach must have just dropped. And I just have this picture of David up out of his throne angry, raging against this person that he thinks has committed this whole injustice. And then Nathan tells him, no, actually, you're right to be angry because it's you. And I just imagine David, the color draining from his face and the energy sinking out of him and just collapsing back into his seat. And how David responds at this moment is the blueprint for us. David says to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned, that's a powerful word, scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you will die. David immediately responds in humility, and it's hard to see that when we just glance over this because it looks like it's just one sentence, right? It looks like all he's saying is like, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he says. And you can read it, and it could sound like every fake apology you've ever heard. I have sinned against the Lord, and you're like, well, yeah, of course you do. You were caught. Of course you're admitting it. But there is far more in that little sentence than what just looks like on the surface. And we see it in Nathan's response where he says, the Lord also has put away your sin. The word uh, in Hebrew, again, not a Hebrew scholar, but I did some research. The word, Hebrew word for also in this sentence is gam. And used in this contact, it implies emphasis on what was said. So another way to read this phrase um, that Nathan responds to, David, is something like, and in response to your confession, the Lord is putting your sin away and you will not die. Something in David's very soul responded in a way, and God granted mercy on David for his sin. David didn't make excuses like Saul before him. He took he owned his sin in that moment. And again, you could see, look at this and say, like, well, yeah, of course, he was caught red-handed. Like, of course he's owning his sin. But here's the thing. Sometimes what we need to feel is the full force and weight of our consequences for our sin, right? Sometimes God's mercy means we escape punishment and harm totally. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is able to capture our hearts and get a hold of us before it gets to this point. But sometimes... God's mercy requires him to step in and allow us to feel the weight of our choices. Sometimes in God's mercy, we get caught. 
Sometimes in God's mercy, we lose everything. And sometimes in God's mercy, that there are severe consequences for what we do. And I used to have this picture of it this way, where um, at some point, God's going to drop the hammer on us, right? It's a very judgmental, punishment-focused thing. At some point, God needs to punish somebody to get their attention. But the more I've looked into this, the more I don't think that's totally accurate. Like, yes, there's punishment, and yes, God is passing judgment on us, but the intention behind it, I think, is different. My mother-in-law was sharing about um, something from this book called uh, The Lord is My Courage by K.J. Ramsey. Um, I own the book, but I haven't read it, but it's a meditation on Psalm 23, and in there, there's this Hebrew word shuv. I think I'm saying it right. You're getting all sorts of Hebrew today. Look at you guys. All going to be Old Testament scholars by the end. That's great. Um, and the word shuv means refreshes, and in the context of Psalms 23, a different way to look at it is like God is bringing us back. And so within the context of this, Sometimes God rescues us by allowing us to understand fully what we've done. Because sometimes that rescue has to happen because we realize we have done so much damage on our own apart from him. Sometimes God's mercy is, I'm going to save you before it gets to that point. Sometimes God knows you have to get to that point before you turn back to him. And his love and mercy for us is so deep, he does not want us to continue down the path we're on. And again, sometimes it needs to go all the way for him to get our attention. Not in an anger, an anger sort of way, not in a condemnation sort of way, not in a you're going to hell kind of way, in a I'm rescuing you. I'm leaving the 99 to get the one. Because sometimes the one wanders off because the one doesn't know what it's doing, right? If you have kids, sometimes the one wanders off because the one does not know what they're doing. And sometimes, and you have to go get them because they don't know what they're doing. And sometimes you have to go get the kid because they know exactly what they're doing, but they don't understand. Sometimes we know exactly what we're doing, but we don't understand the magnitude. We don't understand what's going to happen if we continue down this path. Sometimes in his mercy, hear me say that, in his mercy, God rescues us by letting us see that consequence. He's bringing us back into his safety. Do you think David was going to repent on his own at the end of this story? There's nothing in this story to indicate that God or that David was going to turn back to God on his own, right? He had sin after sin after sin. He'd been given chance after chance after chance. Again, it, there looks like some ways you can read this where he had even forgotten about Bathsheba before she came back to him about her being pregnant and that he had forgotten that he had ordered Uriah being killed. Like that's how disconnected he was. He was not going to return on his own. So God had intervened to rescue David from himself. And that doesn't mean there's no consequences, right? God tells him right here, like, hey, the child is going to die. Your family is going to be under the sword. And we see that later in David's story. His sons rebel against him. Multiple sons rebel against David. And there is conflict and chaos in his family because sometimes there's consequences. But what did God do? God intervened and rescued David because he loved David so much. And he loves us so much that sometimes that's the only way he can rescue us. And because of his repentance, God spared his life. And again, it's hard to view it as God's mercy and love when this happens, and especially depending on what church tradition you grow up in and how it's been explained. Like I said, I used to view this as just straight judgment, like you've dug your own hole. But this is not. This is God rescuing us from ourselves. I once had a, a vision 
of my own life where sin had gone out of control and I was in a similar position to David here where I was forced to deal with the full consequences of my sin. And what I had, what the, the picture I had was this building and it was a foundation and the first couple of floors were pretty solid. And then after that, the building started going in all sorts of different ways. It wasn't stable, it wasn't solid, it wasn't following any kind of plan, it wasn't safe, it was shaky, it was chaotic. It wasn't safe for me. It wasn't safe for anybody else who was around that building. And then a wrecking ball came, tore down the building, and all that's left was the foundation. And God started rebuilding. He started rebuilding my life. And the more I reflect on that, I don't see that wrecking ball as judgment anymore. I see it as God saying, like, you built something that was not sustainable and was not safe to you or for those around you. And we got to get back to the foundation. And the foundation is God. And we need to remember that sometimes we take over thinking that we're the builder and we know what we're building in our lives. And God's just like, no, my child, don't. Please don't. Follow the architect's plans. And we don't. And at some point, we have to start over. But the foundation is still there. God brings us back to the foundation. And again, when we look at this in David's response, easy to say, like, he was caught. Of course he's sorry. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, talks about two different kinds of sorrow, that there's godly sorrow and that there's worldly sorrow. And he says in chapter 7, verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, which is confusing Paul, for I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. David exhibited godly grief and God saw that and responded to it. And our response to sin as worldly grief, though, like if we respond in worldly grief or someone responds in worldly grief, then what does that look like? That's focused on things like, okay, the punishment, the shame, the embarrassment, the self-centered focus on what this means for me. How does this affect my relationship, my finances, my career, my family, etc.? But the emphasis is on the me part. How is this handling? How is this dealing with me? What is my situation? How am I getting out of this? You care that you got caught. You care that you have to navigate tricky conversations. You care that people may know things about yourself that you thought were private. But that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow. It's a care about yourself and yourself alone without any regard to, or sorry, worldly sorrow and grief is a care about yourself and yourself alone without any care for anybody else. Godly sorrow and grief, it can still be about punishment and shame and embarrassment. It can still be about what does this mean for me? It can still be how this affects my relationships and my career and all those other things. But it's through the context of you have this deep understanding of the pain that you have caused or the impact of your sin. You're mortified and you're aware of what's occurred. You regret not out of personal desire or a place of personal worry, but out of pain and sorrow for what you've done and how it's affected others. It's a story that drives you towards repentance, driving you towards renouncing sin, turning your life, and running back to the safety of God. David was met with God's mercy. And then David responded in godly sorrow and reoriented himself and wrote Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is not just David writing a private little poem about himself. 
the beginning of it says, to the choir master. Like, David wrote this psalm to be sung in public, to be acknowledged in public, and to be used in public as not just an example of his confession, but as instructional for how do we repent? How do we respond to God? So Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David begins by appealing and crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness. His cry for mercy is a humble one. He recognizes and reminds us that it's only due to God's unfailing and steadfast love that we can be forgiven. He doesn't deserve God's love and mercy, but God gives it to us regardless. And it's beautiful to see how God cares for us, how he rescues us, not because we deserve it, but because of his desire and his love for us. And when we respond in godly sorrow, God hears and responds to us, regardless of what's caused that. David recognizes he does not deserve anything remotely close to God's mercy. And so he calls out to God, asking God for it. Like, God, I don't deserve this, but you are a merciful God. Wash me from my sin. Cleanse me from this. Show me your mercy, Lord God. So step one is his appeal to God's mercy. Step two, we see starting in verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David continues the next step in humility by fully taking responsibility for what he's done. Right? He fully acknowledges, I know my transgressions. I know my sin. There's no excuses here. Saul, if you stay the life of Saul, king before David, Saul was constantly making excuses for his bad choices. There was always something that he was saying, yeah, but. We don't see that in Psalm 51. We see David say, God, please, I need your mercy. I have sinned against you. I have committed transgressions. I've done what's evil in your sight. You delight in truth. Teach me that. He's appealing. He's acknowledging what he has done. He starts asking for God's mercy, moves to acknowledgement of sin, and then in the next section of Psalm 51, he seeks restoration and renewal with God. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David reminds us here and shows us what the proper posture is when seeking God's repent or seeking repentance. And it's to seek and crave a fresh, renewed interaction with God. David's craving purity with God again. He wants to sing. He wants to be filled with joy. He wants the desires of his heart to be cleaned and renewed, to starting fresh. And this is another way you can tell that godly sorrow is pregnant, or present, not pregnant, um, and there's two repentance. There you go. It's not, it's not just about, hey, God, I'm not going to sin again, because we're going to sin again. We're human. That's what we are. We inevitably will. But our heart longs to God, 
And it longs and craves for community with him and to restore that community, to be renewed in that relationship, to freshly look at God with fresh eyes. Yes, this is what I've done. I understand the path I was on. You have shown me mercy through this. Renew my heart so I am steadfastly in relationship with you again. It's a realization of how far sin takes us from God, how it fractures our relationship with him. And instead, our hearts in repentance wants what he offers us, wants that fresh renewal. Not what the world wants, not what our flesh wants, but what God wants for our lives. We want him to resume being the architect. We want him to resume setting our path straight. We want God, who had rescued us, to continue us on the path that he knows is best. And then the end of Psalm 51 concludes with this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud <coughs> excuse me, of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, for my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then he will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, the whole burnt offerings. The bulls will be offered on your altar. David begins by crying out to God for his mercy. He acknowledges and takes responsibility for his sin. He seeks renewal and restoration with him. And then he concludes in worship and praising God. Worldly sorrow doesn't get to this at all. It doesn't have room for worship and praising God. David's praising God not just for his mercy, but his ability to use this as a testimony to other people, as an ability to say, look how God has shown mercy to us. I think all of us who follow Jesus can talk to this point that we all have things in our lives that God has shown us mercy for. We really stop and think through our life. We have examples of times that God has rescued us from our foolishness and our consequences. Maybe we even have a time where God had to meet us in our consequences, and that's how we came back to him. And we use that, we can use that to show others the love and mercy of God, that there's nobody too far gone for God to redeem, to rescue we can't earn God's favor. We can't declare ourselves perfect because we will sin. But God will go out of his way to rescue us. And he rescues us because he loves us. And we have Christ who shed his blood on the cross as proof of that. Our repentance is more than just the definition. The literal definition is just to turn your back and to walk in the opposite direction, right? So the idea of turning your back to sin and walking away from it, it's more than just that action, it has to be an awakening within us on how terrible sin is, that God is merciful, and that we run back into a renewed relationship with him because our hearts crave for God. And we want to be back in the arms of the shepherd who will keep us safe because the shepherd knows what's best for us. So under your seats, there are baskets. And in the baskets, there are communion elements. And so as we take communion, we reflect on Psalm 51. God, you are a merciful God. 
I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin against you and others. We want renewed relationship with you. Set our hearts and our feet back on what is right. Forgive us of our sins. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace and your mercy and who you are. You sent your son to bridge the gap over death, to conquer sin, because we couldn't do that. Sin is so devastating, it's a death sentence. And so you declared that sentence is carried out by your son because you love us so much. Let us not forget the enormity of what Christ did because of the enormity of sin. And let us not forget the mercy God shows us and how he rescues us. Lord God, we just thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for your words. We thank you for your example through David. Thank you that you are a merciful God, that you are a God who leads the 99 to come grab the one. We thank you for that, for the times when we are the one. We thank you that you rescue us. We thank you that you took sin so seriously that your son died for us. We thank you for repentance. We thank you for forgiveness. And we thank you that we can respond in worship to you. In your name we pray. Amen.